Lord, we are people who need your help at times like this as we open up a narrative with so many things that are going on. Uh, Lord, not exactly sure about how to approach this text and uh, Lord, even what it would say to us as we are living our lives. And Lord, I just ask that today that as we enter into this text that you would allow us to see your hand at work, that we would see um, you on display, whether it be by example or um, by example of not what to do or to be. Help us, Lord, to see um, our hand in the ongoing sovereign plan of yours, that you are still seeking to establish your kingdom, and we look forward to your coming. But Lord, today, may I simply be your mouthpiece. May your uh, people be um, the, the, the eager listeners, hungry to know your truth, eager to be conformed to the image of your son. Lord, we, we ask now for your help and your guidance in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want to begin this morning by asking you a question, and the question is simply this. How are we supposed to respond when we win? I mean, we're living in a political climate right now that is very divided, right? There are those who you might want to say have lost and are bitter about the loss, and there are those who have won and have been very celebratory and obnoxious about that. You could actually say that going both sides. In fact, uh, if you have a Facebook account, um, it probably has not been too happy over the last couple of weeks. Conflicting things, challenging statements, arguments that just never are resolved because that's not the venue where anything is going to be resolved. That's the world we live in today. It's divided. And yet, we long for that kingdom that will bring all of that together and will be united around that one king whose name is Jesus Christ. We long for that day. And as the book of, of 1st and 2nd Samuel has, has taken us on a journey, we have seen God raise up his king, and his king is David. And David in chapter, or in 2nd Samuel, is being raised to that throne and then sits on that throne. He is the king, the one after God's own heart, the one that God has chosen and anointed to be king. And yet, in that position of authority, in that position of respect, in that position of, of power and even comfort, David sins. And we've seen the consequences then of his sin unfold. The sword will not depart from your house. And so we've seen David's sons rise up, and in particular Absalom rise up and, and have this rebellion. And we've seen David leaving Jerusalem. And as he's left Jerusalem, we see him encounter various people who come and are loyal to him. Now the battle has been fought. And if you remember, the battle was fought, but David gave instructions, and he said, don't harm, don't do anything bad against my son Absalom, and yet Absalom ends up dying at the hands of Joab. There was a great victory, and now David is in a position where he's thinking, okay, what's next? This is the kind of the place that we come to as we come to this text. Now, interestingly enough, the passage that we read has a structure to it. 
And I wanna walk you a little bit just through that structure because structure is helpful for us to understand maybe why all this is here. Um, how many of you like sandwiches? How many, all right, how many of you like togos? Yeah, how about, um, what's the other one? Blimpy, Blimpy, is there a Blimpy? All right, that should be the name of a sandwich place. There's Quiznos, there's Subway, right? And of course, there, if you're in Castro Valley, there's Lucas Deli, right? All right, you guys know that, right? Huh? All right? And um, there are other places around too. Now, recently, I've actually been going to a Subway place around the corner from our office. Well, actually, it's over on Center Street there. And um, I went in a couple weeks ago, and there was this, this gal, and I, I said, I'll take a foot-long cold-cut combo. Okay, and so she, she starts to, to pull it out, and th- they make it where they put all the meat together, and they, they put like a, a wax paper over it, and they just kind of stack them, so they're ready to go. All you have to do is pull it out, pop it on the sandwich. Well, she was new this day, and she had pulled this thing out, and the meat was falling apart, and, like I, and I was there behind the counter, and I was saying, hey, this is how you make it. This is how you do it. Because I, I was hungry, I wanted my sandwich, but I, I was wanting to help her along too because it was all kind of chaotic. And of course, then they asked, well, what do you want with that? Well, I'll take provolone cheese and what else? Well, I'll take tomatoes and, and uh, cucumber and pickles and some black olives and you know, douse it with all sorts of mayo and mustard and, <laughs> and oil and vinegar and salt and pepper. And I mean, you make a sandwich because you want to eat it and you want to enjoy it. Now, God has, in one sense, given us in this text a sandwich. I want you to think of it in that sense. And it begins, it looks like this. I'll put this up on the screen for you, and then you could say this would be the outline of the whole section. But we begin by this kind of corporate arguing that's going on now in Israel. Because David has won the battle. And because David has won the battle, I mean, it's like, yay, victory, victory, if you are on the victorious side. But if you're on the side that rebelled, what are you doing? Okay, what's going to happen to us? What's going to happen to us? I mean, when there's a rebellion, oftentimes those who have rebelled, what happens to them? All right, if it was Alice in Wonderland, what would the answer be? Off with their heads, right? And that wasn't unusual to, to actually kill off at least the leaders of the rebellion. So it's legitimate to say, what are we going to do? And we come to to the text here and we find that, but we'll, we'll look at that in just a minute. And then you have at the end, they're arguing again. Because they're not sure at the beginning, what are we supposed to do and who's going to be our king? David, he ran away from Jerusalem, but Absalom's gone, now who's going to be our king? And at the end, when David does his thing and interacts with these people and he's coming into Jerusalem, they're arguing again. So there's this kind of corporate sandwiching going on. And in the middle of that sandwich, this is where the meat is for us, David encounters or interacts with four men. And this is really where we're going to go in our time this morning. But let's, let's set up a little bit um, what's going on here. Let's look at this first bookend um, together here. And this is Israel and Judah arguing. Verse 9, and all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel. Okay, so this was, this was the populace. Yeah, the battle was won, 
But what's going to happen next? Notice what they say. The king delivered us from the hand of, the, of our enemies. He saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom he anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, what, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? The question is, are we going to bring him back or not? Now, some background here. Back in it, you know, the previous passage that we looked at, um, this great battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. If you remember, the, the text is very, very clear. It says the forest actually took more lives than the actual armies took that particular day. Now, the battle was won, but David was distraught, and in his, in his sadness, in his grief over the, the death of his son, Absalom, who was the one rebelling against him, he goes, he kind of spirals down into this, this depressed state, neglecting his responsibilities, neglecting the people who were his own army. And as a result of that, he um, had a verbal slap and cold water splashed on his face, figuratively speaking, by Joab, his commander, saying, wake up out of this stupor. You have people who love you, you have people who have fought for you, you have people who care for you, and they need you to be king. And so we see that at the beginning of chapter 19. And um, those were some harsh words, though, and that will come back to bite Joab in a bit. But it was ultimately what David needed at that point in time. David listened to those hard words, came out of that, and began to sit on his throne again, sit at the gates, and take up that responsibility of being king. But now Israel and Judah are concerned. They're actually concerned. Will the king or will David want revenge for this rebellion? Will he want reprisals for the disloyalty of his kingship? And the question we have read about here is this. If we want David to come back, who's going to go and get him? Who's going to be the one that's going to go and say, ah, we're sorry. Will you please come back? Because the rebellion wasn't just one tribe. The rebellion came from all sorts of different people from the tribes. And so they're all arguing together. It's the tenth time. And just the the reality is, friends, that victory doesn't always mean smoothness. Victory just means new problems, new scenarios, new issues to deal with. And so this morning, as we look at this passage, what I would like to focus on, and I think really flows out of the text, is this. Kingdom attitude attitudes as the rightful king returns to his fragmented kingdom. There was victory, but the kingdom is still very fragmented. And David is going to have to make some decisions. He's going to have to uh, respond to the people that come before him in some ways that actually might be shocking to us. Now, David is not a perfect king. And you might struggle with what he chooses to do here. Because his, his response is not just going to be landing on the side of justice or landing on the side of mercy, which we saw a couple weeks ago. He is going to be also landing on the side of what is politically helpful for the unity of our people. So there's a whole other dynamic going on here. And sometimes those decisions don't leave other people happy. And sometimes you look at them and you're like, how could you do that? Yet David is thinking larger. He's thinking bigger. 
So this passage reveals for us an imperfect king whose attitude reflects kingdom principles. And this returning king will interact with four men as he returns to Jerusalem. I call him Amasa, the enemy commander, Shimei, the slithering snake, Mephibosheth, the loyal cripple, and Barzillai, the aged sustainer. So let's think about David now interacting with Amasa. And I, I am identifying here as we think about David and his interaction with Amasa, the enemy commander, that David is ultimately a peace loving king. What David wants for his people, for the tribes together, is peace. That is what he's shooting for. Look at verse 11. And David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, say to the elders of Judah. And so he gets these priests to, to speak for him. And when, he, he, when they speak for him, he's basically challenging the, the, the tribes, the elders of the tribes, on three fronts. He says, first of all, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the, the word of all Israel has come to the king? In other words, David has heard about the murmuring and the discussion, and David is being proactive and saying, listen, let's talk about this. And so first of all, what he does is he challenges their pride. He challenges their pride. Who, you know, who's going to be the first? Who's going to be the last? Don't be the last. Let's, let's take initiative here. Let's move this on. Secondly, appeals to their tribal relationship. David was from Judah, yes, their family, their, their bone and flesh, is what it says. But he also says that about Israel. So he's appealing to the fact, hey, listen, I am from you. I am, I am of your bone and flesh. That was more true of Judah, but it was also true of Israel as, uh, as the rest of the tribes. Then he also speaks to their anxieties because he's hearing what's being said among the people and he wants to help them through that. And notice what he does. And he says, and say to Amasa, are you not my bone and flesh? God do so to me and more also if you're not commander of my army from now on in the place of Joab. Now what in the world is going on here? David is saying now, that there's going to be a new leader of the army. And you know who it's going to be? It was the guy who was the leader of the army of Absalom, the rebeller. Now, in one sense, friends, that is a a masterful political stroke. Because why? What it does is it tells those, might want to say, rebellious people out there who joined the rebellion, you have nothing to fear. If I'm going to welcome in Amasa as the commander of the armies, then certainly I'm going to welcome you. So this is is David offering Judah and Israel an olive branch. The victorious king. It would be understandable if he would, as we talked about, exercise justice for the rebellion. But David has a heart for peace. He has a heart for bringing the people together. And he finds now a way in doing that. Now certainly, certainly you might ask the question, is David actually taking revenge now out on Joab? He may be. Text doesn't tell us. But we can put a couple of things together and say, you know what? Not only did Joab 
speak harshly to the king, although there may have been some truth to it, but Joab did something that went directly against the word of the king. If you remember, he, he wouldn't listen. Now, I'm gonna take care of this. I'm gonna kill Absalom off so it's done, so it's over with. Now, he certainly demoted Joab. He would still command one of the three armies, but he was not the commander of the armies. But it also paved a way for peace. So those who rebelled against David could, could be confident now of reconciliation. Notice what it says, verse 14. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man. So they sent word to the king, return both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and bring the king over the Jordan. Now, just as a side note, Gilgal has some historical significance in Israel. It is just over the Jordan. It was close to, you might want to say, a central point where they, they could meet up. But this is the place where, where Israel first rested when they came into the Promised Land. This is the place where the Israelites kept the Passover when they entered the Promised Land that ended the provision of manna. In more recent history for Israel, Gilgal was the place where Samuel had called the people to renew the kingdom. It was also the place where Saul failed in his responsibilities as king to keep the word of the Lord. So there's a sense in which this is a good place to begin now this rebuilding of the kingdom. Now, let's just think through this. David desired peace in the kingdom. He was a peacemaking king. But friends, the gospel is a peacemaking message. I mean, how is it described in the Bible? The same olive branch of peace comes to us through the gospel. The gospel is a message of reconciliation, it's a message of restoration, and ultimately it's a restoration of peace. Not peace in the world, but peace with God. And there's a peace that comes as a result of that then, also with the individual. It's what the angel said to the listening shepherds on the hills near Bethlehem. This is what they said, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. So there's this peace kind of motif going on. It is what Jesus said to his disciples in John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. It's what the apostles preached in the early church, the good news of peace through Jesus Christ is what Acts 10, 36 says. And it's the fruit of our being reconciled to Christ. Paul says it this way in Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul also tells us, let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. And so David, in one sense, as an imperfect king, is desiring and, and moving for peace. And friends, that's exactly what God does with us through his gospel. But it doesn't stop there, because not only is this gospel a message of peace, we as his children, those who follow the gospel and follow Christ, are called to be peace-loving peace, uh, people who live like their king. This is what Ephesians 4 3 tells us we're called to maintain the unity 
of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We're called to strive for peace with everyone, Hebrews 12, 14 says. Even Jesus encourages us when he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Now friends, peacemaking is not easy. Peacemaking goes against our flesh. Peacemaking is something that comes as a result of God's grace and humility that is fashioned and shaped by the gospel. And so we need the gospel so that we can be peacemakers. See, sometimes, sometimes we are just satisfied with justice, and sometimes we're just satisfied with being merciful, and there's a place for both of those things, but, but life also is complicated. It's not always black and white, cookie cutter. Are you the kind of person in your decision making, in your relationships, and how you go about talking to people, are you the kind of person that is a peacemaker? A peacemaker that flows out of what Christ has done in you. David was a peacemaking king. But not only that, David was also a merciful king, a merciful king. And here we, kept, here we come to talk about Shimei, the slithering snake, I call him. And here we see David, the merciful king. You might remember Shimei. Um, he liked to mock. He liked to throw dirt and rocks. And he did that as um, David and those fleeing Jerusalem with David walked off into the wilderness. In fact, you can, you can find him just a few chapters before this. In that story, he went on the hillside mocking and scorning David, basically just saying, hey, see, you, you finally got what's coming to you, don't you? That's right, because see, he's a Benjamite, and as a Benjamite, Saul was the king, and David overthrew Saul, and he's still kind of pining away for Saul's reign and say, this is what happened to you. So, I mean, he's not treating David well at all. And Abishai, one of David's men, leaders, says, you know what, David, let me, just, let me go at him. Let me just take off his head. You've got you to really like Abishai, right? He's, he's like a no-nonsense kind of a guy. Let me just get this done. Well, what's interesting is we have Shimei coming to David again, but under very different circumstances. He's not throwing dirt this time. No, he's groveling in dirt this time. He's not standing above David, you know, mocking and scorning him. He's coming before him with humility because he knows that his life is at stake. But notice what happens here. Notice how he speaks to David and, and then the result of that. Look at verse 16. And Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, from Behurim hurried to meet, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. I mean, you just see his eagerness to come down. And with him were a thousand men from, from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, was uh, with his 15 sons and his 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. Now, notice Shimei's words. Notice he, he falls down before the king. And he said, let not my Lord hold me guilty 
or remember how your servant did wrong on that day, my Lord, the king left Jerusalem. And do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my Lord, the king. All right? So you just think through what he's saying. Don't let, don't let my Lord hold me guilty. Don't let the king take my, my words and behavior to heart. I was, I was wrong. Um, I'm acknowledging my sin. Um, I'm eager here to be restored. I'm the first one who's here. I mean, I'm just showing you by my actions that I mean business here. And to back up his eating crow, he has a thousand soldiers ready to serve the king. This is what you call a package deal, repentance. Now the question is, is he really repentant? Well, that isn't necessarily the main point here. We don't know whether he was actually repentant. I would say that this is more of a political repentance for him. The wind has blown away from Absalom, and now it's blowing back to David, and guess what? He doesn't want to die. And so he's willing to do whatever he needs to do to humble himself before the king. Abishai, again, happens to be there, interestingly enough, right? And notice his first instincts, verse 21. Shall not Shimei be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? Again, I like Abishai. He's ready to serve his king. He's ready to protect him. He doesn't like it when he's dishonored. But David will have none of it. Reconciliation and restoration were the way forward for David and his kingdom. Not revenge, not retribution. And just what he says next is um, astounding. He says, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? Now David's words to Abishai remind us of Jesus' words to Peter. I mean, in your mind or with your Bibles, turn to to Mark's Gospel, chapter 8. I want to remind you here that that Jesus, in verse 31, begins to lay out what was going to happen to him. And when he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again, he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, or get behind me, adversary. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. These these words mean the same thing. If you're opposed to the king, you're an adversary of the king. So the emphasis in David's words as he speaks to Abishai are this. I am this day king over Israel, and I will choose what needs to happen. Now, this is the reality, isn't it? I mean, Peter just did not understand who Jesus really was. That was the question that happened just earlier in that story. Who do men say that I am? Well, you're Elijah, you're one of the prophets. Well, 
You know, well, what do you think, Peter? Oh, you're Christ, the son of, you know, son of God. But he had no clue who he really was. He didn't understand what Messiah meant. And Abishai has good intentions here. But they're different than what the king of Israel desires. So verse 23, and the king said to Shimei, you shall not die. I mean, shock. And the king gave him his oath. So Shimei, with all of his antics and slithering groveling for political forgiveness and restoration, is given an oath, a promise from the king, you shall not die. Now, friends, this is mercy, pure and simple. He deserved retribution for his behavior against the king. But Shimei acknowledged his guilt, acknowledging to David that his behavior to him was sin. He deserved a just punishment for his crimes against the king. So Abishai is absolutely right, but David chose mercy instead of justice that day. And here's, here's, here's the difficult part for us. We have a hard time when we see clearly that this is justice, not following through with justice. Mercy recognizes the justice is right, but withholds the exercise of that justice. Mercy isn't saying this person doesn't deserve justice, it's saying they do. But rather than justice, out of grace, out of love, or in, I think, David's case, more political reasons, he exercises mercy to this man who brought a thousand soldiers and a friend named Ziba and his guys. Now, we, again, we don't know the specific motives. We're not told that. But there certainly is this act of mercy, this undeserved favor to one who deserved to be put to death. Now, we only need to go to the book of Acts to see this play it out in a similar fashion. There was a man by the name of Saul who was a cold-hearted, deliberate murderer of Christians. And he was on his way to a place called Damascus. And while he's on that way, Jesus appears to him and speaks to him. And Saul is radically converted. And he says to Saul, you go up and you meet a man by the name of Ananias spoke to Ananias and said, there's a guy who's coming and I want you to meet up with him and his name is Saul. And listen to what Ananias said. Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. Was he right? Absolutely. And here he has authority from chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Is he right? Absolutely. But you see, God had chosen Saul. God was exercising his plan. He deserved justice. But God has exercised mercy to Saul. Undeserving of God's mercy. That's who he was. He deserved that justice, but God had other plans for Saul. And friends, we are also called to be people of mercy. Mercy is a, a kingdom principle, a kingdom attitude, something that all followers of Christ are to pursue in their developing character, 
Again, Matthew 5, 7, Jesus speaking, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. James tells us that mercy is a characteristic of wisdom that is from above. And Jude reminds us, this is one of the things I love about Jude, you know, how do you deal, how do you contend for the faith? His theme is mercy. I mean, how do you contend with people who are confused and doubting and, and all that kind of stuff? He says, well, to those who are doubting, be merciful. Don't just go in there and blow them away and say, your doctrine's all wrong, you're, you're just false teacher following. Hey, be merciful, be gentle, be, be kind. Are you a merciful person? You see, the gospel is a message of mercy. And not only is it a message of mercy, but it affects people then, and as a result of that gospel transformation, we are called to be people who may have the right to exercise justice, but also carefully, rightly applied, can be people of mercy. And listen, we, we start that in our homes. We start that as, as our children start to grow up and they do something they shouldn't do. Maybe you know, a child steals you know, some cookies out of the pantry or something like that. No, we're not talking about the dads, we're talking about the kids now stealing cookies out of the pantry. And so you, know, you sit down with that child and say, did you steal these cookies? I didn't steal these cookies, no. Did you steal the cookies? I stole the cookie, I died. All right, right. and then you say, you know what? Because you stole the cookies, this is what you deserve. And what you're gonna get is whatever the punishment might be. But you know what? Because you said quickly that this is what you did, I'm gonna be merciful to you. And so that whatever, whatever the consequence is, it's reduced. That's mercy. But it's, it's, it's not just, in other words, in order for mercy to be realized, justice has to be understood. Does that make sense? So you say, this is what you deserve, but this is all I'm giving you. And I am being merciful to you. So it begins there, and we teach our children, and in life, we treat each other that way. Yes, you know what? You, you did owe me that $100, but you know what? It's okay. I'll be merciful. However that might play out. God is calling us to be people who who exercise mercy out of kingdom principles because of the gospel. David's just meeting a bunch of people on this journey. Who's he gonna meet next? Well, he's gonna meet Mephibosheth, the loyal cripple. And here we see a discerning king. Now, you need to remember that Mephibosheth is the son of Jonathan, David's covenant friend, who had died, which means that Mephibosheth was, was Saul's grandson, and he's a cripple. He was lame, and then there was a, a, a nurse assistant that was carrying him. She fell, and he just, he, he lost all ability to walk. So in chapter 9, David extends kindness to Mephibosheth and welcomes him to sit at his table. He's one of the last descendants of the, 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 the house of Saul. And because he was Jonathan's son, Jonathan was his like, close friend, he really took an interest in caring for Mephibosheth, welcoming him into his family, into his home to sit at the table. That's a special place. That's an intimate place. 
Then we need to remember in chapter 16, when David is fleeing from Jerusalem, he is met by Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth. In fact, it was Ziba that told David that there is Mephibosheth. Okay. And Ziba actually was in charge of all the lands that were Saul's and ultimately Mephibosheth's. So this is how this character ties in. But Ziba, as David was leaving, comes with all sorts of food and, and some donkeys for David and others to ride on, and it's so refreshing and it's, it's so helpful that David is just like, oh, thank you, this is, this, is, this is really, really good. And by the way, where is Mephibosheth? And Ziba tells him, oh, you know what? He didn't come. In fact, he remains in Jerusalem because he said, today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Basically, Ziba threw his master under the bus. And so David says, behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. Now, that was in chapter 16. And now, as David is returning to Jerusalem, he is met by Mephibosheth. And the story that Mephibosheth is telling is a different story than that which was told by Ziba. And to prove the point of loyalty to David, Mephibosheth has turned into Chewbacca. Just read what it says. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, or washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back to safety. Now, some question whether or not Ziba is telling the truth or Mephibosheth is telling the truth. I think one of the arguments to say that Mephibosheth is actually the one telling the truth is that he began doing this, not after the rebellion failed, but while David was already fleeing. So he's saying, I've stopped doing all this kind of stuff. Now guys, this is not a model to follow. Um, Husbands, if you wanna prove your love to your wife, um, this is not how you do it, okay? Just want you to know that. But what he's doing, he's saying basically this, I stopped doing three things. I stopped washing my clothes, taking a bath, um, stopped caring for feet, um, um, just think toenails, it's a lovely thought, um, or trimming his beard, right? Um, but this was all a way for him to say to David, listen, this, this, is, this is my demonstration that I love you. This is my demonstration that I am loyal to you. This is what I can do. Remember, I'm, I'm lame, I'm a cripple. So here he is, he stinks, and he's standing in the presence of the king, and he stinks, but he's screaming with that stench, David, I love you. And then David asks, well, why did you not go with me? And notice his answer, verse 26. My Lord, O uh, O King, my servant deceived me, talking about Ziba, for your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king, for your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king, but my lord the king is like an angel of God. Therefore, Do therefore what seems good to you, for all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you sent your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? 
There's just a humble attitude going on here with Mephibosheth. So as I mentioned, you know, the dilemma here is who's actually telling the truth. And in the moment, it must have been really, really hard to kind of figure that out. As I mentioned, I think when I look at the facts, it just appears to me that Mephibosheth is the one who's telling the truth and that Ziba had both deceived Mephibosheth and slandered him to the king and that he was lying through his teeth. That's how I see how things unfold here. But it's interesting that Mephibosheth pulls back. He's not calling for justice. He's just thankful that the king can discern right from wrong, and he's like an angel or a messenger of God who will decide what is right. He has already been welcomed at his table. He has already trusted in his kindness and his wisdom, and so he's just going to place himself right back where he was, so to speak, under the care of the king to do what he thinks is best. And David's response seems rather harsh and unjust. It also seems abrupt. Notice what it says, verse 29. And the king said to him, why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. All right, what's going on in your heart when you read that? You're thinking, what? (laughs) You should be chasing down the snake Zeba, and you should be exercising justice to him. Now, we're really not sure exactly the reasons why David responded this way, but David is in this kind of, this unity, political, um, let's, let's kind of all come together mode. And I think, I think one of the things that, that maybe we're missing in this, if we're focusing simply on that tension, is the beauty of Mephibosheth's attitude and his response to all that. Because he says, David, you're a discerning messenger of God to decide what is best in the situation. But look at verse 30. And Mephibosheth said to the king, oh, let him what? Take it all. <laughs> let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. In other words... I don't care about the land. I'm just rejoicing that my king is coming back to Jerusalem. Now friends, that's something beautiful there. That's a a kingdom attitude that that we need to just to to grab a hold of it. So so get this, David has to be discerning to kind of figure out what needs to be done. And you know, Ziba, Mephibosheth, and we see him wrestle with that and come to a decision as a king But get this, Mephibosheth also has to be discerning. And and he would rather discern by saying, what's the more important, the land or the king? So Mephibosheth's grip is not on the land, it's on his king, and that he's come safely home. The satisfaction of real estate and material possessions fall flat in comparison to being in the presence of the king and the king being restored to his rightful place. It reminds me of that old song, some of you may remember it, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand than to be the king of a vast domain and be held, or be held in sin's dread sway 
I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. I think through Mephibosheth, we, we see here's, here's a man who really, he couldn't do anything himself. I mean, he's totally dependent on the king. That's what we saw when David exercised kindness early on in the story. And here, once again, he is just happy that his king, his master, the one who's shown kindness to him, is coming home. Who cares about the rest of the stuff? So yes, David had to be discerning to know who's telling the right thing or who is lying. But so did Mephibosheth. He had to discern what or who was most important. And friends, the Bible tells us that when the king returns, when King Jesus returns, he will know the truth and he will know it absolutely. He is and always has been and always will be a discerning king. Not an imperfect discerning king like David who may not see things as clearly. Jesus will see things clearly and he will exercise judgment that will be right. There'll be no doubt about who is telling the truth and who's lying with Jesus because he knows everything. He knows who is in the light and who is in the darkness. He knows who is blind and who can see. He knows uh, uh, how to separate the sheep from the goats. He, he'll, be the, he'll know the, the ones who will come to him saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Why, why is it that Jesus can do that? Because he's discerning. He knows. And friends, we can learn from Mephibosheth too. Our loyalty to Christ, or I should say, is our loyalty to Christ bound up in the increasing abundance of our stuff? Or is it because we know that with him, we have all the riches we need? It's so easy to allow the tangible things of this world to, to rule us and to, to cause us to drift from clinging to Christ. But isn't that what the kingdom living is all about? Letting go of this world and clinging to Christ. If you want to be my disciple, Jesus says you have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. If you wanna be my disciple, you'll have to hate father, mother, brother, sister, wife, children, and even your own life also. Can we really say what Mephibosheth says? Take it all. What matters most is that you're seated on the throne. And I am simple servant in your kingdom. So David is a peace-loving king. He's a merciful king. He's a discerning king. But he's also a generous king. And so when we come now to Berzali, the aged supplier, we see David is a rewarding king. Barzillai is 80 years old and a wealthy farmer. And God has greatly used him because of his generosity. He comes to the aid of David while he is in the city of Mahanaim and he provides the food for those who are there so that they can um, they can stay healthy, and you know, obviously they can provide the sustenance they need. 
And David, David now, as, as Barzillai shows up, travels the 40 miles to be where David is, he's genuinely thankful that this aged country farmer has been so kind and supportive of him and his honorage through all this time. And so now David wants to repay him with kindness. So he invites him to return to Jerusalem and live with him and have all his provisions taken care of for. But Barzillai will have none of it. Now it's not that he's not honored. It's just that he's aged. He's like, going to Jerusalem is not going to be any benefit for me. And trust me, it's not going to be any benefit for you. In fact, you're going to be wasting all of that stuff on someone who really cannot enjoy it. Why? Well, he, he says, you know, I've lost my, I lost my ability to taste, right? He couldn't tell the difference between ribeye, steak, or porridge. Right? He's, he's lost his hearing. I said he's lost his hearing. So it doesn't matter how beautiful the people are singing in the court and how wonderful the, the sound of the harps are. He's not going to be able to appreciate it. The delicacies of the palace will not have any impact on him. And quite frankly, he really doesn't have the energy that he once had. He knows that he will just be a burden to the king. And so what does he do? He comes up with another plan. He, he says, listen, I will go a little further with you, king. In other words, he wants to continue to honor David as king, to go over the Jordan and, and to, to, to begin that journey back. But he's not looking for any reward from the king, but he does have a plan in mind. Here's the idea. Here is your servant, Chimham, he says. Let him go over with my lord, the king, and do for him whatever seems good to you. Now, we don't know exactly who Chimham is, but it's very likely that he was one of his sons or a family member. And notice the king answered, Chimam shall go over with me, and I will do for him what seems good to you, and all that you desire of me I will do for you. Friends, that, that is no small statement. Just read that again. I will do for him whatever seems good to you. He's putting, he's putting the joy and the responsibility in the hands of Barzillai here. And all that you desire of me I will do for you. Then all the people went over Jordan, and the king went over, and the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his own home. See, David is a generous king in the story. Not only did, did Barzillai have an alternate plan, but David accepted that plan, and he determined that he was going to do good to this other man. And not only that, David follows through with this promise. Turn a few pages over to, to 1 Kings chapter 2, and verse seven. These are the words, the last words of David before he dies, and he's listing off, hey, do this, do this, do this. Some of them are uh, actually related to our passage because they, they deal with Joab and Shimei, but I want you to notice what it says here about Barzillai. He says, verse seven, but deal loyally with the sons, plural there, of Barzillai the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. Speaking here to Solomon. For with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. See, David not only offered 
but he followed through with his promise. And not only did he follow through with his promise, he made sure that that promise would continue on under Solomon. There's generosity for you. It wasn't just reward for reward's sake. There was gener- generosity, yes, because of kindness that was extended to him. Friends, Jesus is our generous king. He gives us eternal life and abundant life. Paul tells us in Ephesians that God the Father has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's not up there. The heavenly places is a, is a statement that refers to everywhere where the Lord reigns. Peter tells us that God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's given us his word so that we might know him and what he expects of us. He's given us his church to equip us through his word and as a place to be served and to serve. He's given us our talents and our spiritual gifts. He's given us our children and our friends and our homes and our jobs. He is a generous king. But generosity is also a kingdom attitude. And those who are God's children are to be children who are also generous. It's an attribute of God, and we then, who are the recipients of that attribute, are to reflect that attribute in the world in which we live. So the question is this, are you generous with your money? I hope you are. I hope you don't just like hoard it and just let it sit there. Use that money. Invest that money. Are you generous to people who are hurting, who are hungry, who are needing help? Are you generous with your time? Are you generous with your your talents and your skills? See, generosity is all part of what it means to be in the kingdom. Again, David was imperfect with that. Jesus is perfect in his generosity, and we are seeking to live out of the gospel. That means that our our generosity is fashioned and shaped with wisdom by the gospel. So we don't just go out and throw it anywhere. No, God, how would you want me to use this? How can I be a good steward and be generous at the same time? So friends, these kingdom principles are just incredibly beautiful and helpful, but here's an imperfect king coming back to a fragmented kingdom. And in each of these encounters, totally different kinds of people approach him. We see this king exercising these kingdom principles and these kingdom attitudes. Now as we bring things to the end, we notice, um, I'm sorry, I didn't see that there. We notice this, this book end this last part of the, the sandwich, so to speak, and it's Israel and Judah who were arguing, but now they're disputing. You just want to think, okay, what does it take for these guys to stop arguing, to stop fighting? Well, we got there first. We went there first, and we welcomed across the you know, Jordan River to Gilgal. I mean, that's, that's the tone that's going on here as we continue on reading here. Just notice verse 41. Well, notice verse 40, and the king went on to Gilgal, and Chimam went on with him, and all the people of Judah, also half the people of Israel, brought the king on his way. Now, this is not, this is not everyone who lives in the land. These are primarily the, the elders, okay, of the people, the representatives. 
Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? In other words, how come you get to do that and we didn't get to do that? Well, we got there first. I mean, that's, we took the initiative. We went. Well, David sought us out. Look at verse 42. And all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense? And the answer there is no. Or has he given us any gift? And the answer there is no. In other words, we did it because we're, we're a closer tribe as far as a family is concerned, but, but we're not trying to benefit any more for us than for all of you, is what they're saying. Notice verse 43, how the men of Israel respond. Oh, we have 10 shares in the kingdom. And you only have one. In other words, there's 10 tribes of Israel. There's one tribe of Judah. You know, so we're bigger than you. There's more of us than you. This is, this is like junior hires in the playground going on here, right? And, and this is the rabble that David now has to bring together. But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. Now, friends, it's just a reminder. It's just a reminder that Although David is a great king and all it was a great victory and he is returning to Jerusalem and, and the kingdom is going to be restored, it's going to be an imperfect kingdom, it's going to be a, continue to be a fragmented kingdom. And But reminds us then there's just a need to look ahead at the greater David and the kingdom that that greater David is going to establish and bring in, that's Jesus and his kingdom, will not be fragmented. It will be united, and it will be a kingdom that's ruled by peace and mercy and certainly discernment and certainly generosity. These are all principles that will be real and true about that kingdom. Now, just real quick, three concluding thoughts just to kind of push this a little bit more into your context. Number one, church culture or gospel culture. Now, I just want to explain this. Are you, are you willing to cut across the grain of church culture and do what is biblically right? I just I want to make sure we understand here. When I say church culture, I'm talking about the greater church culture in America. And there's a difference between the greater church culture in America, and that actually could be a greater church culture at Gateway, let's be honest, versus a truly biblical culture. What is God calling us to do? And there's a tension at, at times between church culture and gospel culture. And we always want to land the plane on the runway of gospel culture. But so many times that church culture is like, well, no, this is what we have to have. When the gospel say, no, this is, this is what is right. This is what is true which is going to be. Friends, for us, that's a challenge. And it should be something that we recognize we wrestle with and we fight with, even when we say, oh no, it's gospel culture. There are things about church culture that creep in and tend to kind of rule us. We may not even see it. Secondly, family culture or gospel culture. In other words, as you look at the, as you look at the wrestling match here, it's how my family thinks, 
in how my family does things going to win over, or is the gospel and what it says going to rule over? Now, obviously, there's things there in the family that are neutral, but there's some things in family life that are not neutral, and it might stomp on gospel principles. And so let's be mindful. There is this kingdom that God has called us to, and he's given us the gospel to live out of in that kingdom. What's it gonna run up against? Surprisingly, church culture, and surprisingly, family culture. Because God has called us to a a new citizenship, fashion shaped by his gospel. Here's the last one, and you can chase me out of the building after this one, okay? Political culture or gospel culture? Now friends, let me say this clearly. Not everything that Barack Obama did was bad. And not everything that Donald Trump has done, is going to do, is good. Our culture wants to see things black and white. There's a left, there's a right. If you're a Christian, you're the right. Gospel culture means that we think about each situation from a Godward, gospel-centered perspective, which means that we're not always going to be black and white, which means that we're reasoning through issues in life, and we may challenge even a person that we voted for or voted down because of gospel centrality. This is how we began our service. Ed was was walking us through a psalm, and, and, and the point there was simply saying, listen, This is the kingdom that God has called us to. There's a new way of living. Our society only thinks that we're just kind of like, you know, cookie cutter. Truly biblical, gospel-centered Christians are thinking people. And we don't just follow party lines. We follow, hopefully, the lines of the king of the kingdom of his church. That is Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. And he calls us to do that with an attitude of peace, an attitude of mercy, discernment, as well as an attitude of generosity, to name a few. May we live like that for his glory. Lord, help us today. David, we know, is imperfect. But Lord, you are the total opposite of that, you are perfection. And although you sit in heaven awaiting the establishment of your king or your kingship on earth, we long, Lord, for that to come. We long for the return of the king. And yet, Lord, while we live here in this already not yet capacity is already part of the kingdom awaiting the establishment of the kingdom on the earth, Lord, we we rest now in what we hear and what we learn from your truth that's strengthened by the gospel, pressed upon us by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we do that so we can live out our lives in such a way that would reflect this kingdom that you have called us to. 
We give you the praise. You are the king. But Lord, we take on our, our responsibility as your subjects to live in light of our king, reflecting our king, and doing it for the glory of our king. Help us to do that today, Lord, in your name. Amen.